Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Desi? Yeah. We're going to start out by thanking our Patreon subscribers from the past week. Oh, are you doing it again? <laughs> Do you want me? To- <laughs> I I can read them this she, week. She had a break. Uh, yeah. This week we have Laura, Katie, Melanie, Ashley, Jessica, Liza, Lauren, Cecilia, Carrie, Liam, Jamie, Nadia, Daniel, Trey, Catherine, MDB, Georgia, Anastasia, Alex, Whitney, Carlos, Sarah, Melissa, and Connie. Thank you all. Thank you. And this month for our $10 tier Patreon level will be an unofficial part five to the Titanic saga. It's going to be, we're going to go a little oddball with it. So we're going to be talking about like Titanic conspiracy theories and weird facts I don't know exactly what I'm doing yet, but I have an idea. Okay. So, but today we are going to be discussing part four, the final chapter of Titanic, movie versus reality. This is it, you guys. This is it. Until Desi's episode, which is... (laughs) That's really it. That's really it. But (laughs) hers is a different thing. So my sources for this episode are two books. One is On a Sea of Glass, The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic by J. Kent Layton, Tad Fitch, and Bill Wormstead. And The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic, and the End of the Edwardian Era by Gareth Russell. Okay, where we last left off... At 12.55 a.m., distress rockets were fired from the Titanic in hopes to alert the nearby ship, which was the Californian. But these efforts were in vain, as the Californian didn't believe the rockets were serious. Oh. Do you remember? Yes, I do. That part where the captain was like, ah, I think it's nothing. Yeah. Let's just go back to bed. Everyone was tired. Aren't we all? (laughs) Meanwhile, lifeboats were still being loaded with passengers. Margaret Brown, a.k.a. the unsinkable Molly Brown, said of the scene, quote, The whole thing was so formal that it was difficult for anyone to realize it was a tragedy. Men and women stood in little groups and talked. Some laughed as the boats went over the side. All the time, the band was playing. I can see the men up on deck tucking in the women and smiling. It was a strange night. It all seemed like a play, like a dream that was being executed for entertainment. It did not seem real. Men would say, after you, as they made some woman comfortable and stepped back. 67-year-old Isidore Strauss urged his wife to get on lifeboat eight, but she refused, not bearing to part with her husband. The other passengers boarding the lifeboat begged Ida to get on, but she wouldn't do it. They even offered a seat for her husband, but he declined, saying that he would not take a seat away from somebody else. Later, friends aboard the ship continued to urge Ida to get in a lifeboat, but she replied, quote, no, we are too old. We will die together. One person suggested that because Isidore was old, he should get on the lifeboat with his wife, to which he countered, not before other men. The couple both died together on the ship that night. Thanks. While Thomas Andrews was determined to get passengers from all classes up onto the boat deck and into the lifeboats, the ship's design kept many third-class passengers from easily escaping. In accordance with U.S. quarantine laws to prevent infectious diseases from being spread, the third-class passengers were kept segregated through a series of corridors and gates. Hmm. So now that there's this emergency on board, it's like, okay, well, now it would be nice to not have it be so difficult. Yeah. To get upstairs. Third-class passenger Daniel Buckley later testified to being woken up by the collision. 
He left his room and saw a crewman telling everyone to head up to the deck. He headed up to the deck where he found passengers wearing life jackets, so he headed back down to his cabin to get one, but turned back around when he saw his cabin was flooding with water. When he made his way back up the deck again with some other third-class passengers, they were stopped by a locked gate. (gasps) Buckley said, They tried to keep us down at first on our steerage deck. They did not want us to all go up to the first-class place at all. Um, Buckley said that they then saw a crewman come by and lock the gate on the third-class passengers trying to get to the deck. He said that one of the third-class passengers he was with kicked the gate open and broke the lock, and they all escaped. Buckley testified he didn't think the crew was deliberately trying to keep third-class passengers from escaping their death and that the crew only attempted to segregate the classes at the beginning when the collision wasn't deemed as serious. So they were like, we just want orderly. Right. You guys stay down there. I'm sorry. You should never lock people behind a gate like I, that. <laughs> like, do you I, know what I mean? I, like, I agree, Desi. <laughs> I agree. Third class passenger Olas Jordanson, Abel Seth, recalled barriers preventing him from making it up to the deck from his cabin in an efficient manner. He had to flag down crew members to unlock doors along the way to the upper areas of the ship. So he he was able to get these go through these yeah. locked doors, but he still had to like flag someone down. He couldn't right. just go up there. Yeah. While the crew may have not been intentionally malicious in the handling of third-class passengers exiting the ship, there were a variety of factors that contributed to these passengers having a harder time making it to the lifeboats. For one, many of the third-class passengers were immigrants who didn't speak English. So communicating with crew members about the severity of the situation, as well as even giving and receiving basic evacuation instructions, proved to be very difficult. Another factor was the failure in communication between the captain and the crew informing the third-class passengers who were located at the back of the ship that something was seriously wrong. Daniel Buckley and Olas Abelsmith were both in cabins toward the ship's bow, and they saw the impact of the collision much sooner than those who were situated in cabins further back. Yet many first-class passengers who saw zero signs of anything wrong with the ship from where they were located were informed before these passengers that they needed to dress warmly and get up to the deck. Captain Smith personally alerted a few first-class people that he knew, such as the Countess. She was informed that there was something wrong even before some of the first-class stewards. So she was like asking, like, where's my life jacket? They're like, what do you mean your life jacket, right. ma'am? And she's like, the captain personally came up to me and told me that the ship was fucked. You crazy old bitch. (laughs) (laughs) This explains why some crew members left gates and doors in third class locked until it was too late. They didn't know in time. And for some crew members, the sight of a bunch of third class passengers trying to make their way up to the upper areas of the ship because they saw water coming in their cabins caused them to panic and lock the gate telling them to wait. Jesus. Though the number of people saved was determined largely by gender across all classes, 92% of the 144 first-class women survived the sinking of the Titanic versus the 46% of the 165 women in third class. 16% of the 462 third-class men aboard survived, while 33% of the 175 first-class men survived. So there's way more third class passengers or there's a lot more third class passengers aboard the Titanic, but a lot more um percentage. Percentage survived in first class. I'm wondering, were there any people who were stuck based on the ship flooding before even anyone knew? Um or was everyone technically able to get up in time? Everyone pretty much got up in time. Okay. Had time. Now the ship, Thomas Andrews said the ship had uh, like an hour and a half at the time of the collision, but it actually took two hours and 40 minutes. But what was the reason why the third class passengers died percentage wise more than the first? Was it they weren't being allowed on the ship, the lifeboats? It was more difficult for them to get up. Okay. That's what I was asking. As well as communication. So they were stuck down below more. Yes. Okay. They were stuck down below more or they didn't understand the perilousness of the situation in time. Because they 
didn't speak the language. Because they didn't speak the language or just a lot of it was timing. Okay. And the people who were in the upper areas. So it's not necessarily people dooming them because they were third class. No, it was none of this. It was just the situation that they were lower. It was a systemic failure and not an Mm. intentionally malicious failure. Like That's what I was wondering. Because a a lot of famous images from the 1997 movie Titanic show... These like horrific scenes of third class passengers being trapped behind gates. Yeah, I mean that's bad. Oh, also, yeah. but they also were suff- they had the greater damage down there. Oh yeah, yeah, they had the greater damage. The people who were in third class at the bow saw the damage first, so they saw the urgency before yeah. uh, the third class passengers who were located aft. Yeah, where the the water didn't flood until much later. Um, so the people who were by the bow obviously were like, uh, something's wrong. Right. They they, didn't need to be convinced. Right. At 1.15 a.m., flooding water continued to weigh down the bow of the ship. By this time, everyone on board could tell that something was seriously wrong. Six lifeboats had now departed the ship since the collision, none of which were filled to capacity, as people previously didn't realize the graveness of the situation, or they felt safer on the large ship. Remember, a lot of people refused to get on lifeboats at first. I'm still surprised they would lower them on full. Do you know what I mean? Like, We're going to talk okay. more about the failures of the whole lifeboat situation. Okay. Um, they were, let's just say the crew was not prepared yes. for a disaster. Though the urgency to get on a lifeboat had increased by this point, there were still many passengers who stayed aboard the sinking ship because they couldn't bear to part from their loved ones. Some of the women had to be forcibly pushed into the boats. Second-class passenger Charlotte Collier had to be torn away from her husband as at boat number 14. As she was heaved into the boat, she fell and hurt her shoulder. Now, the scene at boat 14 was pretty fucking rowdy. This was a mess. Boat 14 is legendary for just being a mini disaster of its own. Is that where the guy cannonballed in? Uh, that was a different boat. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is even like worse, I think. Hordes of passengers were seen crowding the lifeboat, attempting to jump in. Second-class passenger Esther Hart and her seven-year-old daughter Ava were loaded into the boat. Esther's husband, Benjamin, tried to get in next, but he was stopped, prompting 5th Officer Lowe to fire his gun in the air and shout, Stand back! I say stand back! The next man who puts his foot in the boat, I will shoot him like a dog. Damn. By this time, the officers who are manning the lifeboats are getting really stressed out and overwhelmed by all the crowds of people. It's like, after 1 a.m. now, everyone realizes something's seriously wrong with the ship. Yeah. Everyone's just trying to get on a lifeboat now, or at least a lot of the people are. Um, And his solution at that point was to fire a gun in the air to, like, scare people off. Right, and he's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm not getting on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. Though lifeboat 14 was loaded under capacity with only 40 passengers aboard, Officer Lowe felt that it looked very full and he was terrified of other passengers jumping in the boat as it had began to be lowered into the water. Lowe fired three more shots as the boat passed by a crowd of desperate passengers on A deck. The crowd moved back. Boat 14 was almost in the water when one of the lowering ropes got twisted up, causing one end to pull up, and it's like, (gasps) you know, diagonal, and people are like, we're going to fucking fall out. So the lines were cut, and Boat 14 hit the water with a big splash. None of the passengers were harmed, but obviously they were pretty scared by that. At 1.20 a.m., the men working down below in the engine room and the boiler rooms were ordered to stop working and head on up to the deck with their life jackets on. Junior second engineer John Hesketh said, We've done all we can, men. Get out now. At around 1.35 a.m., Thomas Andrews was found standing alone in the first-class smoking lounge. He was standing by the fireplace and staring into the painting above the mantel. His life jacket was sitting on a nearby table. First class steward, John Stewart, approached the resigned ship designer and said, aren't you going to have a try for it, Mr. Andrews? But Andrews didn't say anything. He just kept looking into the painting. He knew the ship was going down soon and he could only stand there frozen in place. The steward left Andrews to go help with the rest of the lifeboats. 
Though it became popular lore that this was the last time that anyone ever saw Andrews that night on the ship, Andrews was actually seen later on in various other parts of the ship assisting passengers. He was assisting people with the evacuation till the very end. But he did take a little moment to collect himself in the smoking room and sort of absorb the gravity of the situation. Yeah. His ship's going down. He was seen tossing deck chairs into the water in hopes that they could act as flotation devices for passengers who did not make it into a lifeboat. He was also seen running around to the bridge carrying a life jacket. But in the movie Titanic, the 1997 movie, that's like a famous scene where he basically just stands there in the smoking room as things are starting to... It's very cinematic. Yeah, things are like falling off the shelves and he's just standing there and then all of a sudden the water just comes in and he's gone. Um, It didn't happen like that. By 1.40 a.m., Officer Moody and Officer Murdoch were loading as many passengers as they could into lifeboats 13 and 15. Boat 15 went into the water over capacity with 68 passengers aboard. Now they're being more willy-nilly with it. They're like, we better... Good enough. <laughs> good en- put, put, put three more in there. Yeah. Hopefully it holds. While one of these boats was being loaded, a man jumped from the deck into the boat and landed on a woman named Bertha, injuring her. Now, poor Bertha had already injured herself earlier in the night because she fell down some stairs. So she gets injured a second time by some dude jumping. If some in the boat. dude jumped on me, I'd push him out. <laughs> <laughs> During the lowering of boat thirteen, boat fifteen, which began being lowered right after, nearly came crashing down onto boat thirteen. Ugh. This is a mess. Yeah, a lot of these, like everyone is fucking panicked and freaking out, and the officers, they, I mean, None of, no one knows what they're doing. Nobody knows. They did not have enough training. I mean, it's already a stressful situation. Yeah. So even if you knew everything, it would still probably not go 100% mm. smoothly. Um, but yeah, to not know anything on top of it. Absolutely. As the ship's bow sunk further into the water, the Titanic was now leaning slightly to port. At 1.40 a.m., the final distress rocket was fired. By this time, B-deck was flooding with water. It's apparent to everyone that there isn't much time left before the ship goes down. From his lifeboat, 4th Officer Boxhall could see rows of lights from the portholes descend into the sea. Boxhall rowed his lifeboat around toward the back of the ship, and at this time he could see the ship's propellers had begun to rise in the air. That's so scary. Let's take a break right there. Okay. And we'll be right back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. Bruce Ismay departed the ship in collapsible boat C at 2 a.m., Now, as we stated last week, Ismay would claim that there were no women or children around when he got into this boat. However, there were reports from survivors refuting this claim, some saying that there were crowds around the boat and that warning shots were being fired to keep the frantic passengers at bay. By the time collapsible boat C hit the water, the well deck was submerged. Collapsible boat D was the last lifeboat to be successfully lowered into the water. At 2.05 a.m., first-class passenger Jane Hoyt watched her husband Frederick, who was still on the Titanic, as the lifeboat she was in descended. Frederick began talking to Captain Smith, who was nearby, shouting orders through a megaphone. Frederick had known the captain for many years. He gave him condolences for the great tragedy that was still unfolding. Captain Smith told Frederick that he only had a little time left if he wanted to try and save himself. He said that he might be able to catch a lifeboat to jump into. Frederick took off running to where lifeboat D was just being lowered into the water. He took off his coat and jumped into the icy cold sea. The passengers of lifeboat D pulled him into the boat. Jane Hoyt looked up and shouted, My God, it's my husband! (laughs) And both of them survived that night. Wow. So he made a last-minute decision. Well, if there was room, why not? Yeah, Around this time, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride were still in the Marconi room. Captain Smith met with them in their quarters and relieved them of their duty, telling them that it was every man for himself now and they needed to take care of themselves. But Jack Phillips would not leave his post. Phillips was communicating the situation to the Carpathia, which was still hours away. Meanwhile, messages from another ship, the Frankfurt, were pouring in, which distracted Phillips from his communications with their rescue ship. And he was exasperated because now he's getting these messages coming in from his ship that's inconsequential to their rescue. That's like not even like, right? you're not our rescue ship. We told you what's going on. Please yeah. stop. And he did. He uh, responded to the Frankfurt's operator, you are a fool. Keep out and do not interfere with our communication. Yeah. This is the same guy that told the uh, guy from the California, shut up, shut up, (laughs) shut the fuck up. (laughs) Phillips was attempting to let the Carpathia know that they were all abandoning ship and that they were losing power. So these were his last-ditch efforts to get any necessary information out to their rescue ship. Harold Bride would later say of Jack Phillips, he was a brave man. I learned to love him that night, and I suddenly felt a great reverence to see him standing there, sticking to his work while everybody was raging about. I will never forget the world of Phillips. I will never forget the world of Phillips for the last awful 15 minutes. At this point, Phillips hadn't even put on his life jacket. He was so consumed by all the work that he was doing. He was distracted that at one point a worker came into the Marconi room and literally attempted to steal his life jacket off of his oh back. Oh my God. Like he had the life jacket sort of draped over yeah. his back. And some other guy comes in and is like, I'm taking that. But Harold Bride saw this go down and whooped the guy upside the head nice. with some heavy object and was like, Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And he knocked him out cold. So I don't know what ended up happening to that guy. But he's like, that's my friend. Yeah. We've been in this Marconi room for four days straight. Answering everyone's fucking letters. Right. 
We're very, it's a very stressful job. It's only yeah. been two of us rotating in six hour shifts. Right. Not getting enough sleep. Don't fucking take his life jacket. <laughs> Both Phillips and Bride left the Marconi room and ran to catch one of the remaining lifeboats. This was the last time that they saw each other as both of them split up. There were only two lifeboats left on the ship, boat A and boat B. These were two more collapsible boats. Officer Lightoller frantically worked to prepare lifeboat B on the port side, while officers Moody and Murdoch readied boat A on the starboard side. At this time, the band was still playing amongst the sounds of screaming passengers. Nice. Harold brought. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's that's like a horrifying combination. That's eerie at that point, right? There's that's like horror movie soundtrack. There's no denying that it's weird at that point. Yes, I mean I know that the band. I think it made sense keeping people calm early on, even though it's not for me. But at this point, when people are screaming, that's not a good combination. That's a read the room moment. Absolutely. Not that I'm not... I I'm not judging the musicians. Not that I don't have reverence for the band. They did what they thought was best in the situation, and I know they're lauded as heroes. Um, that's fine. For me personally, it would have been a weird moment. Oh, God. I would have been like, I'm going to remember this forever. <laughs> <laughs> as the most horrifying detail the, of the entire The whole night. thing is bad, but this is the detail I'm going to stick on. Really? When I tell people, I'm going to really emphasize. <laughs> We're doing a ragtime again, really, right now? And each ragtime beat was, was punctuated by a horrifying <laughs> scream. <laughs> it's chilling. Harold Bride attempted to get into boat B, but... Boat B had crashed upside down onto the deck into a flood of water. That's how bad the lifeboat situation is now, that this boat was unloaded properly and it crashed down to a different deck. Yeah. On, like, capsized. The crew was unable to lift the boat back up and hook it to the cables to lower it off the ship and into the water. So the the lifeboat's just stuck there. On the other side of the ship, collapsible boat A also crashed while they were trying to load it. Uh, it didn't land upside down though, but the boat couldn't be pushed off the ship or loaded into a davit to be correctly launched. The boat would end up washing off of the Titanic as she continued to sink with passengers running after it, desperately jumping in before it floated away. (sighs) Jesus. The lifeboat was flooded with water too. Around 20 passengers made it into that boat, but only 13 survived. (gasps) Why? uh, Probably because it was full of water. Did, did the boat sink? No. So how did they die? Do we know? Probably because it was filled with icy water. And so it's cold. Died of exposure. Yeah, okay. Harold Bride would end up climbing into the collapsible boat B when the ship sank with the other passengers who were left treading water. He survived. Jack Phillips, his partner in the Marconi room, sadly died that night. Among those who made it to the overturned lifeboat was 17-year-old first-class passenger Jack Thayer, who jumped off the side of the ship with another passenger named Milton Long. Thayer recalled that moment when he hit the water. He said, quote, The cold was terrific. The shock of the water took the breath out of my lungs. Down and down I went, spinning in all directions, swimming as hard as I could in the direction which I thought would be away from the ship. I finally came up with my lungs bursting, but not having taken any water. The ship was in front of me, 40 yards away. Thayer couldn't find any sight of Milton Long after they dove into the water that night. There are varying accounts of Captain Smith's death that night. Some say that they saw him in the wheelhouse as it became swallowed up with a crashing flood of water, as is portrayed in the 1997 film. You see this... Very dramatic sequence where Captain Smith is just standing alone in the wheelhouse and all of a sudden it's like you hear the crack of the windows right before this huge wave bursts through and he's gone. Others said that they saw him and Thomas Andrews together jump into the water. Third class passenger Eugene Daly was among those who had jumped from the ship. He was forever traumatized by plunging into the water amongst a mass of screaming people, including children. At 2.15 a.m., a wave crashed over the deck of the ship. 
By this point, the bridge is completely submerged in water. Water crashed through the glass dome at the top of the grand staircase and flooded the room. The remaining passengers on the ship scrambled to the stern, and they were just trying to escape water that was just coming and coming at that point. The stern of the ship had risen out of the sea at a 30-degree angle by now. Passengers were sliding down the deck and into the water. Officer Lightoller dove into the sea from the roof of the bridge. He described the plunge into the icy water as feeling like a thousand knives. <sighs> Lightoller then had to, find, had to fight against the suction from the ship going right. under, but he was able to make his way to the overturned collapsible boat B and grab a hold of a rope that was still attached to it. There were a handful of men who made it to that overturned boat. We'll talk about that a little later. Lightoller said he could see the swarms of people on the ship still rushing toward the stern, which continued to rise in the air. He then watched the forwardmost funnel of the ship break apart and fall onto a crowd of desperate passengers treading water below. You know that that scene from the Titanic where that big-ass fucking round funnel falls on everybody? The large structure barely missed him by inches, but the impact from it crashing down into the water pushed the lifeboat that he was clinging to and those hanging onto it like far away. Yeah. One of the Titanic's firemen, John Thompson, was in collapsible boat A when the funnel broke off. He said it, quote, broke loose and fell into the water with a roar, causing so great a wash that our boat was sent spinning and I was knocked violently against one of the davits. At 2.17 a.m., all of the lights in the Titanic went out at once. At this point, the ship broke in half where the third funnel was located. Steward Alfred Thessinger was on the aft end of the deck when the ship split in half. He said it was like, quote, a violent explosion suddenly shook the entire boat. After the ship split in two, the stern of the boat plunged back down flush with the water. But the back half of the ship would not remain that way for long, and soon the stern began rising again. The passengers who were still on board were still clinging to the railings. Steward Cecil Fitzpatrick recalled the moment that the back half of the ship sunk vertically into the sea. He said it was with a, with a swish as a clean dive as ever was made by a fish. The ship completely disappeared from sight at 2.20 a.m., All that was left was the sound of passengers screaming in the water. Oh, my God. First-class passenger George Reams said it sounded, quote, atrociously grim, mysterious, supernatural. The passengers who had been thrown off the ship were fighting desperately to find floating debris to cling to as they made their way through the masses of dead bodies. The passengers who were floating in nearby lifeboats had to sit and listen to what many described to be the worst noises they'd ever heard in their life. The screams, of course, grew quieter as the passengers succumbed to the below-freezing waters. Now, this was 28-degree water that these people are floating in. A human being can go unconscious after just 15 minutes of being submerged in that water, and you can die from being submerged in that water between 15 and 45 minutes. So you don't have a lot of time. So, but once you go unconscious, you die from drowning. Yes. That's another thing that happens. Drowning can occur easily from limbs going numb. Yeah. Also from panic. Uh, You're just disoriented and you're freaking out. Maybe you swallow some water. Right. Like a lot of bad things can happen. And quick nightmare. Basically, if you were in the water, you had a very slim chance of surviving that night. So you had to get up on top of something quick. Steward Cecil Fitzpatrick managed to make it 20 minutes in the water as he swam for his life over to collapsible boat B and he was pulled on board. Now, by on board, of course, we mean on top of it. Yeah. (laughs) At this point, the lifeboats debated whether or not to go back and pick up survivors. As we mentioned in episode two, not every lifeboat wanted to go back for survivors as many feared that the panic of the waterbound people would capsize the boats as they clawed their way to safety. Lifeboat six had only 23 people on board, including the men who were tasked with manning the boat. 
Quartermaster Robert Hitchens was in charge with Lookout Frederick Fleet and Major Arthur Puchin to assist. Aboard Lifeboat 6 was first-class passenger Margaret Brown, who urged Robert Hitchens to go back for survivors. Margaret had actually been forcibly placed into that lifeboat after she had spent so much time aiding in the evacuation. They finally were like, Maggie, get in the boat. And she did. The rest of the women on board also begged Hitchens to go back, but he was like, the fuck we aren't. Yeah. Margaret and Hitchens wound up getting into a fight on board about this whole situation. She's like, we need to go. We have 23 people in this boat. Yeah. There's a capacity for 65. We, can you hear the people screaming out there? He, he kept refusing. At one point, Margaret even tried to get the women on board to row just to keep warm. Yeah. And he was like, stop it. Jesus. And he he was being a real pill. And finally Margaret lost it. And she was like, I will fucking throw you over the board overboard this boat. Yeah. If you don't shut the fuck up. And for some reason when she said that, it really scared him. Good. Um obviously if you have if you've seen the ninety seven movie, this character is portrayed by Kathy Bates. Yeah. I think she looks exactly like the real uh mm. Maggie Brown yeah. looked. By the way, she never went by the nickname Molly. Yes. Until after she died. I think she was nicknamed that. She went by Maggie or Margaret, but um, that doesn't really matter. So <laughs> this, like I said, this scared Hitchens so much that he stood down as yeah. Margaret was like, all right, get a, give me the oar. I'm going to beat We're, the shit out of this if, guy. <laughs> if you won't let us go back for survivors, the least you can do is help us stay warm and keep our circulation going. Yeah. So let's row in a fucking circle. I don't care. Everyone on board thought Hitchens was a dick. Yeah. On the way to pick up the Titanic survivors, the Carpathia nearly hit an iceberg themselves. Oh my God. That would suck. Ugh, the irony. Uh, <laughs> then who's going to help them? Not the Californian. I mean, that just shows how icy it was and dangerous that they should not have been speeding through there. It was a very icy. When it finally was morning, everyone looked around and they realized they were in a field of ice. Damn. Like, it was crazy. Just before 4 a.m., the survivors could see lights coming from the horizon. It was the Carpathia. Lifeboat 15 passenger Bertha Mulhaville described this time. She said, quote, It was awfully cold. The water every once in a while slapped up over the bow of the boat and covered us with spray. None of us had on more than night clothes, with a scant covering over those. Ugh. Dawn was just breaking when I saw a light off in the distance. I spoke to the nearest sailor about it and asked if it could possibly be a vessel coming to help us. He said it must be a ship's light, but someone stole up and said it was probably a boat's light. Then two big green lights broke through and we knew it was a ship coming to rescue us. Oh my God, that must feel so good. Oh yeah. We cheered and cheered and cheered. Some cried. I just sat still and offered up a little prayer. I mean, I read countless... uh, statements from various survivors and describing this moment. And like one person was like, it's the most surreal feeling to think for hours on end that like, this is it, you're going to die and sort of just it almost accept right. this crazy reality. And then to all of a sudden have this miracle happen yeah. that like, oh my God, maybe I'm, maybe we're not going to die. The Carpathia may have missed the survivors that night, as 4th Officer Boxhall had earlier given the wrong coordinates to send to the Carpathia. The coordinates he gave them were 13 miles off (gasps) from where the ship actually sank. And there was no ship left, so it would have been difficult for the Carpathia to spot these little lifeboats floating in the dark from afar. But Officer Boxhall happened to have thrown a box of distress flares into the lifeboat as he left the ship. Wow. And if it weren't for this split-second decision he made to take some flares with him, the Carpathia might have missed these survivors. Oh, my God. So at 2.40 a.m., the Carpathia spotted green distress rockets in the air and were like, oh, there they are. Yeah. Why? And they didn't even know the ship was gone at that point. Right. Like, they were shocked to find that when they got there, there was nothing. Yeah. But... Uh, There were lifeboats. Lifeboats and floating bodies in the water. 
Boxhall fired another flare at 4.05 a.m. as the Carpathia continued to approach. Meanwhile, the sea had become rougher as the men clinging for dear life on capsized lifeboat B were trying desperately to signal the other lifeboats to, like, come pick them up. Yeah. Because they couldn't hold on much longer. The sea yeah. had gotten very choppy. The other lifeboats had formed a flotilla by attaching the boats together with ropes, so they all like were in a group. But lifeboat B had also been pushed far away after the big funnel fell. Right. And they're all just, like, they can't even row. They're yeah. just sitting on this, like, structure. Officer Lightoller, though, found his whistle and was able to blow on it, which signaled the other lifeboats to come get them. And they did. A few of the other lifeboats detached from the flotilla and rowed over, saving the 28 men who were atop the overturned lifeboat. Damn, that's a lot of men. Yeah. At one point, these guys, I read this passage where it was like, they were just trying to balance. So they were like standing on top of this boat and like, all right, sway this way, sway that way. Like, so stressful. They had to stay out of the water too. Like they didn't want to get wet as much as possible. I mean, obviously they were probably soaked, but they, their main objective was like, we can't be submerged in water. Yeah. Like we'll die. Marconi operator Harold Bride had to be carried into a lifeboat as his feet were in such bad shape Mm. with frostbite. And he was basically on the verge of death overall. Like he had to be physically placed into a lifeboat. Right. The men on lifeboat B had to hold on to him like before the other lifeboats came to save them so he wouldn't fall over the boat as they waited for help. Not everyone who made it onto the lifeboat survived. Bodies had to be rolled out of the boats to lighten the load and make room for other survivors. One guy died right as the lights from the Carpathia first appeared. Oh, my God. The sun began to come up just as the first survivors climbed aboard the Carpathia. During the trip aboard the Carpathia, White Star Line chairman Bruce Ismay hardly said a word to anyone. He stayed in his room the whole time and barely ate. There was a Dutch man named Alfred Norney who was one of Titanic's survivors. He had an interesting story. He had actually purchased a second-class ticket for the Titanic, but when he got on board, he lied and said he was a baron and that he needed a first-class room. Whoa. And they believed him, so he finagled a first-class room by claiming he was a baron. He almost got into a fight with a lady when they were aboard the Carpathia because he was found sleeping atop a giant pile of blankets that were there for survivors. And he refused to get up when the lady was like, can I get a blanket? Yeah. He's like, this is my bed. So she yanked a blanket from out from under him and he went rolling like (laughs) off onto the floor and everyone pointed and laughed at him. Um, I mean, everyone was like, who's this guy? Yeah. That guy's a baron. The baron? Fuck him. (laughs) Second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley said the mood of the ship between his fellow survivors and those who were already aboard the Carpathia, like, was, you know, kind of weird. He said, there was very little excitement on either side, just the quiet demeanor of people who are in the presence of something too big as yet to lie within their mental grasp, which, and which they cannot discuss. As the final survivors were being loaded onto the Carpathia... The Californian rolled up. Oh. And they saw the scene with like bodies in the water and lifeboats and debris. And they were like, wow. I guess we shouldn't have took that nap. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, what happened? Jesus. And they were the ones who were only a few miles away. Yeah, they were a few miles away. And they roll up to the scene like, yeah, we just got to. Need any help? (laughs) Like after the fact. They literally said that. They're like, they're the person who comes to the kitchen to help clean after you've already done all the dishes. Right. Or something. Like I tried. <laughs> I, I made, there was an attempt made and I made it. Uh, he, yeah, I guess they turned on their wireless finally in the morning and then they like got a distress signal or some signal like we need help and they roll up like, you guys still need help? Oh my God. So, <laughs> um, the Carpathia was like, we're pretty much done here, yeah. but if you want to like look for bodies in the water, yeah. uh, be our guest. But we're wrapping things up. Yeah. We're about to take off to New York. <laughs> Thanks for the help. Yeah. Crazy. They did look for survivors, but they found none, just debris. 
The last survivor to climb aboard the Carpathia was Officer Lightoller, who would spend the days aboard that ship assisting his fellow survivors as well as the crew of the ship. The Carpathia would finally depart for New York at 9 a.m. The U.S. Senate hearings investigating the sinking of the ship took place in New York and Washington, D.C., beginning on April 19, 1912 and ending on May 25, 1912. 82 witnesses testified over the course of the 18-day inquiry, including Titanic's passengers, their crew members. Also testifying was Captain Rostrin of the Carpathia, as well as Captain Lord of the Californian was called to testify. And basically like, why didn't you guys help? Yeah. And he gave some kind of like, uh, uh, answers. We were were sleeping. We were (laughs) My alarm didn't go off. <laughs> yeah, they were in big trouble. Yeah. The report concluded that the captain of the Californian did not respond adequately adequately to the Titanic's distress calls, and also that there were not enough lifeboats aboard the Titanic, which caused a great loss of life. They issued recommendations for new safety measures that should be taken, Uh, Some of these recommendations included that ships have to have enough lifeboats for everyone on board. That seems like a pretty obvious thing. Although, even if there were enough lifeboats, it looks like they would have, some of them would have been empty or half empty still. Right? Much less because then there would have been people who... Knew could there was aboard. enough seats, yeah, and they would have been like, "I'm not," t-, you know, there wouldn't have been. But them- I'm just saying, there's like two prong, like it's also using them properly, right? I mean, yeah. there were a variety of recommendations that were made for the Titanic, but lifeboats was like the primary thing where it was like, look, part of the reason there was such a great loss of life is because you couldn't save enough people, and then people were scared to help. Because well, they didn't think there was enough room right, or whatever. Which there was not enough training yeah. for the lifeboats. I mean, it was all around a bad situation. Uh, they also recommended that at least four crew members were assigned to each lifeboat and they had and they should have adequate training in manning the lifeboats and preparing them. I think the Titanic before it sailed only had like one lifeboat drill. Oh. So yeah. they just I, I don't think anyone thought that this was a possibility. Yeah, that it would happen. Uh, they were not properly. I mean, it's trained. like how we all do fire drills, and we know we don't really pay attention or care. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, right, and like, God forbid, the worst happens. We would be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a Marconi operator was re- like they suggested a Marconi operator needed to be on duty at all times. I guess that was to the Californian. Yeah, like a subtle hint. Because it's remember, a subtweet. That was a subtweet to the Californian whose Marconi operator turned off the radio and went to sleep. But it's also like I'm like coming up with my own recommendation. Right. <laughs> but it's like you should also have people who are just about the ship and not the letters from people. Right. Like all they have to focus on is the safety at issues. That's a good point, Desi. I wonder if they I wonder if they address <laughs> that issue where it's like personal messages go through this guy and important messages communications between other ships go through that guy. Right, and you might be sitting around a lot. <laughs> right. But at least you're ready when something you, happens. You, yeah, right. Um, so they also suggested don't fire rockets at sea unless you're in distress. I think that was another hint at the Californian who thought, oh, those rockets are for fun. Oh. So maybe like they were like suggesting making it a law. That they're so, only allowed to happen when it's distress. So that you know for sure, like... Uh, if you see a rocket, the law says that yeah, that's being fired because they're so we in can't make that excuse, <laughs> right? <laughs> shit, shit. There's a rocket. <laughs> ships with uh, they also said ships with over a hundred passengers should have two electric searchlights on board. So I guess another means to signal right uh, nearby ships. Uh, they also suggested watertight bulkheads should continue to the uppermost continuous structural deck, and then that deck itself should be watertight. Britain had their own inquiry. That began on May 2nd of 1912 and ended on July 3rd. Bruce Ismay testified at both the American and the British inquiry. The British report concluded that the Titanic followed the rules of the British Board of Trade and were not legally obligated to have any more lifeboats than they did. So they weren't found like liable liable for that. They're like, well, they did. They followed the law. They did follow the law. It just sucks that it went down the way it did. They seem to blaze 
place the blame on two things. <laughs> the iceberg. I'm just laughing at those judges in their powdered wigs being oh. like, it just that's just the way, the way it went down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that just sucks. <laughs> It'd be like that sometimes. Sometimes, you know how you had, they didn't have to have more lifeboats. That's just the way it goes. Right. Ah, that's sucks. Cheerio, bro. Cheerio, bro. (laughs) So they were like, this is where the blame should be placed. The iceberg itself. Wow. And the Californian. I agree. That is accurate. (laughs) (laughs) It is the iceberg's fault, technically. Technically, it was the iceberg's fault. Look, the iceberg gets off a lot. Yeah. (laughs) We don't talk about the iceberg. We don't enough. talk a lot about what that iceberg was doing, just sitting there, ready to rip open a hole. Several <laughs> holes. Uh, I mean, the Californian is such a villain in this. It's crazy. And they were definitely lambasted in the press. Like, you just sat there. They're so lazy. They're- I mean, technically, I relate. <laughs> Sometimes you just hope it's not something bad. I hope that's something bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, crazy. The British Inquiry Report issued several safe, safety recommendations as well. They were all very similar to those from the American Report. As a result of both of these inquiries, changes were implemented to ensure that ships had enough lifeboats for everybody. So they're like, all right, let's make this a rule. Yeah. That you got to have enough lifeboats for crew. We'll have enough lifeboats. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of part four, the final chapter. Very good. That's a lot of history for you, Rachel. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) This was a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, But like I said before, if you'd like to hear some odds and ends about the Titanic and as well as conspiracy theories and, um, Whatever other tidbits it can conjure up, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We will have an episode all about that next week. Yeah. It'll probably be up on the 30th. Yeah. So go over there. Subscribe. Do it. Um, Good job, Rachel. Thank you. Um, And I will be back next week. With um, all of the stories from the making of the 1997 movie, there's a lot of drama that went down yeah. during the making of that. So that should be a fun episode. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll probably have a pic on Instagram. We'll have lots of pictures. Okay, cool. Okay, I can't wait, Desi. And we are going to record our after show now. That's up on Patreon. Okay. All right. Bye. That's it. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.